Imagine, you're at 15,000 feet in the Himalayas. You've been on the move for three days and over 80 miles, as fast as you can, in this type of terrain anyway. And you know that around the next bend is camp. But you round that bend, and there's no camp. And so we're like, oh, I guess we'll have to keep going a little bit further. Another mile went by, still not at camp. Another mile went by, still not at camp. You know, we're at like 28 miles, 29 miles, still no camp. It's getting dark. It's getting colder. Uh, But we were really starting to wonder, and we're like, you know, thinking at what point are we just going to like lay down and cuddle for the night? Like um, the sun's starting to go down. We're like, do we just keep going and keep hiking and running throughout the night? And so they do keep going. 30 miles 31 miles, still no camp. Today, a story about the snowman race. Billed as the world's toughest ultramarathon, the snowman race covers 126 miles over five days with 33,000 total feet of climbing through the Himalayas. It takes the average person about 15 days to make this trek. But these 29 athletes from all over the world are trying to cross these mountains as fast as possible. I'm Chris Hampton. You're listening to Plug Tone Outdoors. And we're talking with the top American finisher, Gabe Joyce, to find out what it takes to run the snowman race. My name is Gabe Joyce. I live in Lander, Wyoming. I am a, a runner, a running coach, a teacher, um, and I competed in the snowman race in the fall of 2022. So when I was in college, my wife and I, we both worked at a summer camp, um, kind of smack dab in the middle of the Zorica Baratooth Wilderness in Montana. And we would take these kids on like five-day backpacking trips, and we'd often have like 24 to 48 hours between these camp sessions. We always plan these really aggressive goals to try to go and climb up some peak that was 20 miles away or whatever. And it was really critical to have to be back on time. It was like non-negotiable. You couldn't be late for the end of the break. And so we would take all of our heavy backpacking stuff and hike as hard as we could and go and climb up these peaks and end up like running down the trail with like 40 pounds on our back trying to get back on time. (laughs) And I mean, it was kind of fun, but also like, kind of miserable too yeah and so we'd go back for like another summer we'd come back with even lighter gear thinking we were really slick doing like the fast and light thing mm-hmm. and still it turns out you you can only go so fast when you have like 25 pounds on your back once we moved to wyoming uh, after college it got to be the point where you know you only have so much time before you have to be back to work we decided just to stop carrying the backpacking stuff and just run and get to these places we wanted to get to faster and, and still be home by dinner yeah, I'm, I'm not a runner at all. Um, no intentions of becoming a runner, but I could see myself getting sucked into running that way. Right, that's, that's kind of what it is. You do kind of get like sucked in. It was never a plan. I was never like, I want to be this mountain runner. It was just, I really wanted to get to amazing places and had to find a way to fit it into life. Was there a moment that you were like, okay, I'm a mountain runner? 
as these things became more and more common, I remember one fall, my wife and I, we got a ride from Lander over to Big Sandy. For Lander runners, it's kind of a classic run now to go from Big Sandy through the Circle of the Towers over Jackass Pass and into Sinks Canyon. And we decided to kind of do that a little bit on a whim. And we got like it, they were caught in a blizzard on Jackass Pass in the Cirque. I mean, it was, <laughs> and we were very underprepared. And this was, I think, the longest run we'd ever done in our lives. And we finished that with our, you know, our eyes wide open, like, can't believe what we just did. This was, you know, it was, it was mind blowing. Once that felt like possible, it was sort of like, what else could we do? This is so cool. Um, and that was maybe a, like a, a watershed moment of, can do a lot of fun things running in the mountains. And Gabe has done a lot of fun things running in the mountains. He's also done grueling things that he'd call fun, but would probably kill you and I. As a husband and father of two young girls, a teacher, and a community leader, he has to be incredibly intentional with his time. But somehow, he's found the time to run and win many 100-mile races, and has held several fastest-known time records in the mountains of Wyoming. And the chance to run across the Himalayas was one he just couldn't pass up. But this race wasn't at all going to be focused on just moving as fast as you could. Bhutan had something else in mind. The snowman race was the idea of His Majesty the King of Bhutan. He wanted to create an event. I believe it was uh, also to help celebrate his birthday. So part of his own birthday party. (laughs) um, To create this event, to draw the world's attention to how climate change was impacting Bhutan, and particularly the high Himalayas of Bhutan and and the Himalaya in general in, in Central Asia. And so his idea for drawing attention to this was to put on a race and invite trail runners from around the world to come and see firsthand for themselves what is going on in the Himalayas. Did it seem odd to you? Because it did to me the first time I heard about this race that there was a, uh, you know, a big ultra run through the mountains, which very few people can really go do as a... Uh, uh, you know, pointing toward climate change. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I almost rolled my eyes at it at first when I heard about this. I was like, how ridiculous is this? Like, how does it make sense to fly all these people from around the world and, and all the, you know, the, the, the carbon that comes along with that as something for climate change awareness? To be fair, I thought it sounded really amazing. I was sure. like, well, what, what, a, what a completely badass adventure but i kind of thought really like really for climate change come on now but as i kind of read more about the event and learned more about the event i was sort of like whoa they're dead serious this is not the sort of thing where they're putting on an event with just a climate change being sort of like a convenient excuse to do it like an excuse to put on the party or whatever they were really serious about it and they the the more I learned, the more impressed I became, and and saw that there there could really be tangible benefits for for the running community and maybe even the world. Yeah, this wasn't like a five percent of proceeds go toward climate change, right? Yeah, not not at all, <laughs> not at all. This was uh, very much like a, a financial net loss for them. I mean, the the amount of money the government of Bhutan invested into this race 
is, is frankly unbelievable, especially considering their budget. Like Bhutan is not like an overly wealthy country. And for them to go through all the the hoops it took and yeah, the finances, the logistics, the years of planning to make this happen, um, you, you don't do that unless you're really serious and, and feel like it's going to make a difference. Yeah. What was it like? What was the conversation with the runners like? in explaining that you're now climate ambassadors. Yeah, they use that term climate ambassadors um, very seriously. We, we were, even before we left, like, so there was a whole application process. You know, we kind of interviewed with an athlete manager and a race director, and they wanted to make sure uh, it was abundantly clear to us, like, this race is not about you trying to run across the Himalayas and to c- cross the finish line in some sort of glory for yourself. That's not what this is about at all. This race is about climate change. It's about Bhutan. It's about the people of Bhutan. And so the tone was set. And from the moment we got there, we were we were welcomed as as climate ambassadors. And we were told from the chairman of the committee, of the Snowman Race Committee, that this with this race becomes a great responsibility for us and that we are absolutely expected to to go out in the world and and share our experience and and share what we've seen and 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 be ambassadors for climate change in fact Bhutan was the first carbon negative country in the modern world and still one of only 3 offsetting more than double the carbon emissions that they produce For the race, they tracked and offset the emissions created by athlete travel. And maybe most important, these runners were racing through and stopping in villages in the high-altitude, fragile ecosystems that were being most affected by climate change. They got to see with their own eyes the real results of global warming. And I don't know about you. But when I hear a politician talking about climate change, I tune them out. It's probably an election cycle. They didn't write that speech, and I'm not even sure they understand what they're saying. However, when an athlete speaks up about something, particularly in the era of stick to sports, man, and especially an athlete who knows firsthand what they're talking about, I listen. So this might just be a masterstroke from His Majesty, the King of Bhutan. So they bring in athletes from all over the world a week before the race is scheduled to begin, and they make sure that the reason for the race is crystal clear. We also did a lot of fascinating, amazing cultural events. We went to um, a monastery called Tiger's Nest that some folks might be familiar with it's this buddhist monastery hanging off the edge of like a 500 foot cliff or something like that i mean it's just out of this world so we had lots of very very cool um, spiritual experiences lost track of how many times a different monk or abbot blessed us and and, Mm -hmm. and wished us well so it was kind of um exhausting you know by the time race day came around we we were all pretty pretty tired (laughs) So it sounds like the whole country is getting into this thing. The whole country was absolutely behind this. Okay. So there are 20 international athletes, 12 men, 8 women from 11 different countries. 
they all fly to Bhutan and meet up with the Bhutanese team. Five men, four women. They're all going to be running 126 miles over five days, which for most of these runners seems pretty tame. But the average elevation of the course is over 14,000 feet. So basically, that would be spending five days trying to run at the same elevation as the highest peaks in the continental United States. Not to mention the 33,000 feet of climbing and the high point of the race at just about 50 feet shy of 18,000 feet. Doesn't seem so tame anymore. In fact, it sounds pretty daunting. And I'm not a runner, but I have spent my fair share of time in the mountains sharing big objectives with people from all across the world. And every time, there's one intangible that not only makes success more likely, but is the lasting thing I walk away with. And it's not the achievement. It's the sense of community. And Gabe says that getting to know the Bhutanese athletes, particularly when they would sing together during group runs, was one of the most special parts of his trip. Here we go. Group run. Running behind the Bhutanese. We're all going. They were such an exceptional group of people. They had diverse backgrounds, as you might expect. Well, all the males were involved in like the armed forces or, or police of Bhutan. But you know, some people, like uh, the woman who, who won the race, you know, was a, a yak herder. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what she does for a living: is herds yaks and collects cordyceps, and that's so for a living. She walks around the Himalayas and. Um, she beat every other woman there. <laughs> yeah. So kind of, uh, uh, you know, maybe slightly uh, non-conventional training re- regiment that worked very well for her. So the Bhutanese government brought some ringers in is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> we'll be right back. And we're going to run right alongside Gabe day by day on the world's toughest high altitude Ultramarathon. Hey, like what you're hearing? Want to create something like this for your own brand? Plugtone Audio is a full podcast production studio. We help outdoor brands make engaging, intentional, and unique audio experiences to tell their brand stories. With full capabilities in-house, Plugtone is a one-stop shop for ideation, production, audio engineering, and distribution of audio storytelling. We are aiming to help tell the stories that aren't being told in our traditional outdoor media. If you want to create something amazing together, go to PlugtoneAudio.com and reach out. We can't wait to hear from you. Um, that whole first week we were in Bhutan, we were catching the end of the fall monsoon. It rained every day. It was gray. It was overcast. All these different 
monks had been praying for good weather and for things to clear. And then it was unbelievable the morning of the race as all these clouds started to pull back and reveal mm. these enormous mountains with like blazing white snow-capped peaks. And it was like, oh... This is what we're getting ourselves into. <laughs> um, so like that that was the curtain at the last minute before the race started. Exactly. So we didn't yeah. quite know what, what we were getting into. We could, didn't get a preview, but uh, race morning, that was uh, quite eye-popping for sure. Snowman race, day one, 29 miles. Total climbing, 10,000 feet. Highest elevation, 16,255 feet. The the first, oh, I don't know, four or five miles of the race were, were some of the only miles that were truly runnable, but it was, of course, a little bit muddy. Um, and so we could start out running quite well. And then as soon as we left this this road and got onto single track, the trail, I mean, you can't even, the, the word trail isn't quite appropriate. <laughs> I mean, it's a utilitarian path. Um, you know, these are our working paths where, People are, mostly it's a lot of livestock using them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of pack animals, yaks, transporting goods, transporting people. And so it's these rocky, absolutely just mud-filled paths. And of course, you know, it's all these pack animals, you know, leave behind, uh, you know, their their feces. And so it was, after the, the weeks of rain leading up to this, it was like running in diarrhea. Oh, I mean, it man. was just gnarly. Yeah, th that was interesting. You know, like okay, here I am. <laughs> this is this is running. You know, <laughs> they threw you right from the easy dirt road. Yeah. into the mess. Yeah, absolutely into <laughs> the mess with the slimiest, filthiest stuff you can imagine. And as we started to ascend higher into you know into the high Himalaya on the first day, all right. Snowman race is getting real. Check this weather. The river. Glaciers tumbling off mountains. It's outrageous. Uh, things became less muddy, but of course then it became snowy, rocky, and just extremely high altitude, difficult, difficult to move which is something that I had really looked forward to with this race. I was really curious to see what it was like to run and move at such extreme altitudes. And I can confirm it's humbling uh, <laughs> and, and, and very challenging. <laughs> Made it to the first big pass. I am at, let's see. Ooh, almost 16,000 feet. Something like that, anyway. A little bit of kind of icy grapple coming out of the sky. Otherwise, it's pretty freaking fantastic up here. Oh, all right. I'll get down before I get too hypoxic. <laughs> I mean, there's some running for sure, but it's more like. I mean, like dynamic mountain movement would maybe be like a term mm. for it. You know, you're. You're hopping from one rock to the next, jog a few steps, splat into the mud, hop on four more rocks, jog a little bit, hike up the next hill. You know, it's in it, it takes a kind of an extraordinary amount of patience because Sounds like your it. progress is slow. Um, you're not moving nearly as fast as you'd like to. We were carrying, 
you know, uh, eight, 10 pounds on our back of required gear. So that slows you down. Then there's a the thinner air. And so it's just, uh, you, you have to take it bit by bit because there's, you know, if you're picturing like a, a Boston Marathon or something, it, it couldn't be any more different than that. I'm I'm curious. In the past, you know, a long time ago, when I did run quite a bit, um, I would sort of get lost in my thoughts while running. It doesn't sound like you even have that opportunity in that kind of terrain. You're you're kind of right. Uh, yeah, if for for the kind of runner that likes to like kind of space out and just zone out and cruise. This, this, this isn't it. Um, takes full-on focus and concentration. Um, mm. And so that makes it really mentally exhausting as well as physically tiring, of course. And t- to me, that's the challenge of this. It's like, you know, once you get really fit, you know, you, you can train your body to run all day. But to, to train your mind to stay focused mm. so that you can move through that sort of terrain uh, safely is is really difficult. That takes a lot of a lot of practice and a lot of mental stamina. Yeah. Uh, how were you feeling on that first day? Um, I felt quite good running. I was pleasantly surprised how well I held up with altitude. Um, certainly felt a bit hypoxic, uh, like the high pass that day, which was at sixteen thousand feet. But I felt like I was keeping it together pretty well. And the last couple of miles before I got into the the day one night halt. I was starting to feel like a little off, but I was like, oh, I'm going to keep it together. I should be okay. All right. I think I'm almost to the final night halt, or the first night halt, excuse me. I'm going to get ahead of myself here. I don't know where it is, though. We got word that it was moved up a little bit. Seems like I should have been there by about now, but I'm still on course, so. Giddy up time. Feeling a little hypoxic at the moment. I think I'm still close to 16,000 feet, but doing okay. Okay. Got into camp. I was like, all right, I'm going to change out of my wet clothes, eat some food, lay down, and I figured things would be fine. And Okay, here's night hot one. Unbelievable. Time to go eat and sleep. Uh, I went with that game plan and I went and laid in my tent and I just started feeling terrible. I mean, it was like every mm. every minute that went by, I sort of felt like my skull was being crushed. I felt kind of sick to my stomach and woozy and just kind of felt like I was out of my mind a little bit. And it didn't help that our camp was, I think, almost right at 16,000 feet or maybe it was a hair below that. Wow. So for listeners who have climbed a mountain in the U.S. or maybe like a 14er in Colorado or something like that. You get up there, it's really high. You high-five, you have a snack, you turn around, you come back down, right? And so your actual time at altitude is is really low. Yeah. But to get up that high and then to stay there and try to recover at that altitude, um, I discovered is that's what's really hard when you don't get a break from it. Um, And so that whole rest of that afternoon and that evening, I felt just just awful. I couldn't eat anymore. I couldn't like I couldn't sleep and was kind of a miserable human being. Were other people also suffering yeah. the same way? Yeah, a lot of folks were struggling for sure. Um, I was certainly maybe a, amongst the few that were feeling it the hardest that first day. My prognosis to 
to carrying on the second day was really low. The doctor there said, like, if you don't, if you're not better, you're not, you're not racing tomorrow. Um, same with like the night halt manager; they weren't going to let me go unless mm. um, I got a lot better. Snowman race day two, twenty-five miles total climbing, five thousand five hundred feet. Highest elevation, seventeen thousand feet. I woke up at like two in the morning and was kind of like, hey made me feel a little bit better. Mm. I was able to eat a little bit of food at two in the morning and I was like, oh, you never know. <laughs> and then I forget what time we had to wake up, four or five or something really early. I don't know. It wasn't that much longer. I woke up again. I felt even a little bit better. I got some food on me and... Everybody feeling? It's a little check-in oh, video. See how we're doing here. Everyone like warm and cozy? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyone want to second that? It's not, there's nothing like waking up to literally frozen running shoes. Yeah. How your teeth, Bender? Oh, good, man. Good. I forgot to brush mine last night and it was like heavenly this morning. Yeah. Any better, Megan? What? Any better? No. Various degrees of sickness plaguing the crew. And there's Gabe. Hey! Better stuff. Here we go. It's cold. Went and put on the best show I could for the doctor, mm-hmm. smiled from ear to ear and hopped around and was like, I'm ready to go. And uh, <laughs> um, I convinced her to sign off for me. And uh, reluctantly, the aid station or the, or the night hall manager said, fine, go ahead. <laughs> um, so it sort of felt a little bit miraculous, but I was able to turn things around just in time and, and continue on a day two, which was such a relief because to, to go there and only run one day would have been... Uh, a massive disappointment. I'm curious, in the middle of the night at Night Halt 1, were there moments when you were like, I don't think I even want to continue tomorrow? No. I desperately wanted to continue. I mean, I was there for this once-in-a-lifetime experience of running across the Himalayas, and um, I wanted to embrace and experience everything that I had to offer, whether that was comfortable or highly uncomfortable that that wasn't that wasn't a concern i just really wanted to be out there 100 percent. okay about to start day two i almost didn't start today with some nasty ams symptoms yesterday got nice and medicated hopefully that's a good choice gonna give it a try today see how it goes mostly just want to run across the himalayas we're all getting ready. It's cold. <laughs> Game on. So day two, like, I mean, I was a little bit nervous going into day two. I was like, wow, I completely got my ass kicked at the end of day one. I need, I need to keep it together for day two here a little bit. Um, so I intentionally dialed back the effort. I, I ran all of day two with a good buddy of mine, Luke Nelson from Pocatello, Idaho. All right. Luke and I are making progress. Here comes our friend from Laya. She's so strong. Sometime we're going up this. Don't know where yet, but it's coming. And so we started out together up uh, another large climb. We went up to, I think it was about 17,000 feet right away. Some of the best views of the entire trip. It was unbelievable, but kept it together through there. And then we had a huge descent down to, I think we were running in a valley that was about thirteen or 14,000 feet, which 
you know, it was really high, but it felt kind of low. It was <laughs> yeah, like, oh, exactly. it's great down here. There's like green grass and um, felt like there was oxygen. So um, it was nice to have someone to run with and move along and share the miles with and kind of help watch out for each other. And we just kind of moved along pretty well. And that day was was challenging, but I was really pleased with how well I, I was able to keep it together. We had another high pass we had to go over and I mean, it ended up being a little over eight hours of running again, I think. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Woo. <laughs> I mean, it feels uneventful now looking back on it because it was, but it was more just about like trying to make it through one step at a time because I just, I, I was so so focused on being able to finish, mm -hmm. and um, and so I knew I just had to make it through little by little, and that was that was the whole goal that day. And yeah, it was great great to have somebody to run with. And the final destination that day was probably one of the most remote villages in the world. It's called Lunana Village. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I think it is the highest altitude permanently settled village in the world. I hope I'm right about that. But I mean, it's out there. There's no roads like like you know you're like 30 miles of trail just to get to this village wow. so it is is really tucked back there so that was somewhere that i've been looking forward to getting to so i was thrilled to make it to lunana village at the end of day two and day two chewed up a lot of people there was folks who like didn't who who turned around after night halt one and didn't continue on they weren't confident they could make the cutoffs or complete the race one, one of my good friends sarah kais she ended up with IV needles in her arm and getting mm. a helicopter ride out that next day. There was a, another athlete who was lifted out on a helicopter. So people people struggled. Uh, you know, the the time at altitude was was wearing folks down for sure. All right, folks, made to night halt to Lunana Village. I'm just resting now. But you gotta see this view. I don't know if it'll turn up. What? That's from the tent. Not bad. Yeah, Night Hall 2 is some of the most memorable times of the whole trip. So all, all the students, all the kids in this village, um, they got the day off of school. It's so wild. It's so wild. <laughs> and they, they had the all the, they all made signs about climate change that they were like holding up for us and as so they were welcoming us into the village. Um, that evening they made an absolutely enormous bonfire, which is kind of remarkable because like there's no trees around this area for a while. It's like it's mm. so high. So I don't know where they got all that wood from. I'm sure that was a good bit of work for them. All right, we're in Lunana Village and all these wonderful children are going to sing for us around a fire. I can't believe it. And then it'll be bedtime. What's your name? My name is... Nice to meet you. My name is Luke. But this huge bonfire and... They did dances for us and sang songs and they put on this unbelievable show. Um, and so we got a chance to hang out with these kids and adults in, in Lunana Village and, and hear their stories. So that was really special, even though we were all just 
exhausted, completely knackered. Like we all, we all stay up along the fire, you know, for well into the, the, the dark in the beginning of another freezing night. I don't know if I mentioned that before, but goodness, the nights there are cold. I mean, <laughs> damn. <laughs> I mean, you can stay all right warm in your sleeping bag when you get out in the morning. Whew. Um, anyways, so night two in Lunana Village was, was really special. We'll be right back with the final three days of the snowman race. So what is the Plug Tone Audio Collective? Well, first and foremost, we're a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. We're a network of creative, passionate, forward-thinking people who believe in the transformative power of storytelling and service to our communities through podcasting, climbing, hiking, skiing, mountain biking, and expanding outward. We're here to offer effective advice, ask great questions, and tell the stories that aren't being told. You can listen, follow along, and learn more about us and our shows on Instagram at Plugtone Audio or on our website at PlugtoneAudio.com. And please, subscribe to the show, give us a rating, leave us a review, and share this episode with a friend. It really helps. Snowman Race, Day 3. Scheduled for 27 miles. Actually, 32 miles. Total climbing, 7,500 feet. Highest elevation, 17,946 feet. I felt good. I felt like I was really starting to get more acclimated. And day three was our, you know, most folks were anticipating that being the most challenging day of the whole journey. It was... Like it's supposed to be a, about 26 miles and going over a pass that was at 18,000 feet. It's just mm-hmm. a hair under 18,000 feet, like 17,994 or something like that. It's hard to think too much about the fatigue with views like this. Unbelievable. Here comes Luke. Lunana Valley's down there. Un. Unbelievable. I keep saying that, but I think I'll keep saying that. Here we go, up, up, up. Joggy, joggy. That's let's go, let's go, boot knees. Looks like we got another welcoming committee as we had another little village here. Even got the Bhutan flag out today. Wow. Jogging well at about 14,000 feet. <laughs> Amazing. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. About 14,000 feet. I think we're going somewhere up there where the mountains get really big and snowy. But... We came up from all this, the valley below, crossed the river, did some hiking. There's Luke, looking good. Lunana Village is somewhere way down there. Oh my, giddy up. All right, 
We are climbing at 16.7. You can see one of our Bhutanese friends up there in the orange pack. We gave up on eating while moving and took a standing snack break. I think it had to be done. And we're getting a little snowier, getting a little weirder, but maybe we've got like another 12 or 1300 feet to go to the pass. I'm pretty sure we're gonna make it. Pretty sure. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Peace out. Folks, this is pretty cool. A uh, monk or a llama, somebody at the tiger's nest gave Mr. Luke Nelson here some prayer flags to add to the highest part of the course, which indeed we have made it to somehow. Prayer flags from the tiger's nest. If that's not amazing, I don't know what it is. Bravo, sir. I felt surprisingly good that day. Um, as as we worked our way up, for sure, like hypoxic, things were silly, but I was I was able to eat well and and keep. I, I was like just pounding these peanut butter filled pretzels. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> what are you? You mentioned that it was really cold at night. Yeah. What are you wearing? How are you dressing to run at eighteen thousand feet? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So we'd start in the morning with like everything on, you know, like all these layers, and then the moment the sun would hit us, it felt blazing hot even if it wasn't um and so most of the time we were running in shorts and t-shirts wow here we are in the himalayas in october you know up at i think by the time i got to eighteen thousand feet i think i put a wind jacket on or something mm. like that um there's fresh snow on the gr ground and um the air temperature and solar intensity is warm enough for like shorts t-shirt wind jacket yeah. I mean, that's wild. I think that's wild. Um, I, I suppose it is a race for climate change. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so as we're that, I mean, that really was striking as we were up at 18,000 feet and like, you know, barely wearing, you know, any layers and looking at these giant moraines that don't have ice in them anymore. And, mm. you know, you can tell they're, they're recently melted out and there's these lakes left over. And um, that was... That was really eye-opening, particularly on that third day when we were up in such a high alpine area. Um, but the yeah, the, the lack of ice in some areas was was kind of staggering. The terrain on day three was as difficult as anything to move on. I mean, the the path was barely a path. You know, it's if anyone's ever hiked or ran on moraines before. It's not super pleasant, you know, just a big pile of rocks. Uh, and that's that's all it is. Um, and so there was some route finding in there for sure. Um, but it was real slow going at a high altitude. And and so certainly Luke and I were really looking forward to, to being done. That was a long day. And as we got to kind of mile 25, 26, whatever, I think it was supposed to be around there. And we weren't finding camp. And so we're like, oh, I guess we'll have to keep going a little bit further. Keep another mile went by, still not at camp. Another mile went by, still not at camp. You know, we're at like 28 miles, 29 miles, still no camp. Okay, another update, because why not? Found this lake. It's pretty cool. Found Luke. That's cool. Still looking for my soul. 
No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we were thinking, like, do like, we miss this camp? And then we're like, well, how could we possibly miss this camp? We are going down a valley that's, I mean, it's, it's a U-shaped, glacially carved dr- valley, but it's still relatively narrow. Like, we can see from side to side of it. There's no trees. There's nothing, like, besides mm-hmm. some rocks to block the view. We're kind of in a grassy strip by a, a stream in the middle of it. We're like, we couldn't have missed this. And you can't take a long wrong turn because a wrong turn means you're like going on a mountaineering expedition up, right, uh, right. <laughs> up to the top of the ridge or whatever. Uh, but we were really starting to wonder and we're like, you know, thinking at what point are we just going to like lay down and cuddle for the night? Like um, the sun's starting to go down. We're like, do we just keep going and keep hiking and running throughout the night and go to the next night halt? And it wasn't until a little more than 50K, we were like 31 or 32 miles. Wow. We finally reached that next night halt. Which there uh, apparently there had been some confusion about where that one was supposed to be, um, just I think one of those general, you know, growing pains with a race that's being put on mm-hmm. for the first time. Um, but that made for a really long day. Um, Luke and I were out there. I think it was like twelve hours. Can't remember exactly, but it was a a full day, and there was a lot of other folks that were out there. Um, much longer than that. There was a whole crew that kind of came in with a couple of soldiers actually that were out there. Um, and they all kind of gathered together and, and uh, made it in that night very late, I think close to midnight. Wow. Did any of those people end up having to exit the race? Yeah, they did. Pretty, I mean, there was one runner and she, she's climbed the seven summits, you know, she's summited Everest and, and she was, uh, lifted out of there the next morning with um, pulmonary edema. Um, I mean, so this, we're talking about experienced, strong, elite athletes that got chewed up by this. So um, the, yeah, the the challenge was real for sure. But that was, a, that was a really difficult day for a lot of folks. I just about broke a lot of people. And I was <sighs> thrilled that in some ways that I, w- I would say was like... Uh, an easy day for me like that. It was very challenging, but like that was maybe the day that I felt the strongest. Maybe mm. the way I put it, like I really felt like I had it together um, and and had had what it take to finish that one. So I was thrilled with that and felt felt really fortunate. Snowman race, day four, fifteen point five miles. Total climbing, seven thousand one hundred feet. Highest elevation, sixteen thousand. 300 feet. Okay, good morning from Night Halt 3. That was a burly, crazy night. There's a lot of people that look really rough. It's really cold. You can see it's icy. We're kind of in this deep, glaciated valley. It's damp and cold. But today's our shortest day yet, even though it packs a lot of climbing punch. So hopefully we all make it through in one piece. <laughs> all right. Hang in there. Day four, I sort of feel like I got clobbered. Mm. <laughs> uh, we 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 started out with this, a mega steep climb. All right, here we are in day four, and the climbing has been pretty unreal. Um, we're at 2,700 feet of climbing in five miles, and it has not been soft climbing. It's been like, like Grant Swamp Pass climbing. Luke's getting out his sunburnt legs. Look at how red those are. Mmm. There's the moon. Okay, I think we get to do some descending for a while though, so that's cool. Seems like it's about time for that. All right. I think 
think we just might be able to pull this crap off. Maybe. <laughs> Felt like an absolute never-ending descent. And again, just to reiterate the trail quality, I mean, it was basically descending a waterfall for like 4,000 feet. I mean, it was just this stream bed of rocks. You know, as we got further down, some of them were covered in moss and things. And it's just <laughs> hopping down these rocks. And there was no cruiser easy miles. And um, we just descended down, 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 out of the high country. All right, a little check-in here, folks. This is wild. We were up at 16-something not too long ago. We've just dipped below 13,000 feet now. It's only a matter of, a, I don't know, a couple miles or something. And it's a completely different world. Different ecosystem, mud, moss, plants, trees we haven't seen in a couple days. It smells like earth, water everywhere. Amazing. So we have to descend like this for another ooh, 1,500 feet or so. And then we have to turn around and climb up another, I think it's three and a half or 4,000. I think we're almost done for the day, something like that. So today is the shortest day mileage wise, but I think feet per mile, it's sort of a punch in the gut in the steepest day. So, all right. Hope you're all doing well. I'm gonna try not to hurt myself. Bye-bye. Oh, wow. All right. The never-ending descent actually ended. Made to the river. Sort of looks like there might be tigers around. That waterfall's awesome. Tigers? Yeah, right. <laughs> what? That was my thought too. We we learned that in, in our like week before the race, some of our, our prepar preparations was like, yeah, there's Bengal tigers in Bhutan. <laughs> like, what? Like, that's that's not something I'm accustomed to being um watching out for. And it's like temperate rainforest. It's like jungly there, you know. And I was looking around. I was like, damn, I. I don't even know what I'd do if I'd see a tiger. You know, we didn't have like bear spray or anything like that with us. You know, I mean, we've been completely defenseless. And if I yeah. saw a tiger, it'd have been like, well, <laughs> this is a hell of a story, a way to end. You know, like that's about what it would have been, you know? Like, yeah. So it did look like there could be tigers around there. Um, and then we went from that, went along the river for just a couple of few miles past a hot spring, and they had to turn around and go right back up again. <laughs> okay. 4,000 feet and four miles, done. You can just see camp over there in the distance. Goodness, that looks really good. And I'm, yeah, I remember that climb, then back up into the high country, just about feeling like it was the end of me. All right. Just made it into night halt for, in my very spacious and comfy tent. These are very nice. I'm pretty sure I had an entire family-sized bag of Fritos in this Ziploc bag crushed up. It's almost gone. <laughs> um, today was only 15 and a half miles. It was 7,500 feet of ascending and 7,500 feet of descending which is bonkers with absolutely no easy miles. Um, 
feeling pretty tired, but feeling pretty stoked. Tomorrow is day five. We have a punchy climb. Can't remember if it's like 3,000 feet or something up to a pass that's right above us. Scourge yourself. Take a video in here a second. And then it's like 10K down to Boomtog. So um, that'll be interesting. <laughs> I don't know if my shoulders can handle it, but I'm going to make it there somehow. Uh, the field has dwindled down to, I think, a total of 17 athletes at this point, starting with 29. Uh, this is a pretty, pretty uh, well vetted field. So that's kind of outrageous. Um, tells you a little bit about just how difficult this race is. And I don't have, uh, no, nobody quit. Let's put it that way. Like doctors told them they couldn't keep going and things like that. And helicopters were sent in for people. No one was just like, oh, it's not my day. Um, <laughs> like people were absolutely worn th thin people who are phenomenal athletes. So, uh, feeling pretty fortunate to still be out here and more or less in one piece, I think. And uh, looking forward to getting this all done tomorrow. That's all. Bye. You know, it's like if you made it to night four, like you're gonna finish. Mm -hmm. um, no one got no one got airlifted out that night, and um, everyone kind of like rolled into that camp looking haggard, destroyed, <laughs> emaciated, but kind of with this like twinkle in their eye, a smile of like. We're gonna make it. We're gonna do this. Yeah. And so there was kind of like as we're eating uh, more of our you know, spicy rice and vegetables and, and camp the night. There was a yeah, real kind of a celebratory feel. But it was also sort of surreal. It was like a a scene from like an old war movie or something like that. We'd be like, oh, wonder how so and so is doing. Yeah, I haven't seen them since night one. <laughs> like, oh, where'd we lose so and so? Oh yeah, night two we lost them hope they're okay you know so it's like this yeah. i mean we hadn't been out there that long but it felt like an eternity you know so there was uh yeah there was this tremendous bond celebration um uh night four knowing that we're almost there but also 100 percent aware it's not going to be easy uh finishing the race getting out into the, the city of boomtong was was the final destination and and even though that day there was like again it was about a marathon distance and I think there's only about three thousand feet of elevation gain. We we were all savvy enough at this point, knowing that it's not going to be a cakewalk to the finish line by any means. Yeah, if, even if we do feel like we're almost there. Snowman race, day five, twenty-seven miles, total climbing, three thousand feet, highest elevation, fifteen thousand four hundred feet. Starting out on on day five, we just had one large climb. That was most of that three thousand feet of climbing. Uh, we did that. Uh, had one last like big look at the high country, and then we started a long descent. All right, day five, cruising down, frosty cold, but we're moving well and staying warm. Really looking forward to Boomtong and a little more oxygen. And maybe even making some orange Julius. <laughs> if we can find some orange juice and vanilla ice cream or anything that even looks like that, it's going down. <laughs> As we did that, we descended and the path, the trail, whatever you want to call it, 
and that became again that muddy, soupy, mm. sloppy mix. Um, and so even like an elevation profile looks fairly smooth, but there was absolutely no easy miles. You know, again, mud up to the knees, your feet disappearing. <laughs> Gabe. How's it going? Where's my foot, dude? <laughs> I lost my foot. We have uh, currently, uh, we're in the is. process of confirming <laughs> no easy miles. So much mud. God, my scarfers look so good. Look at that. Check that out. <laughs> Hashtag scarfer. Oh, this is something else. Just when we thought it might get a bit easier, the mud is Class four, class four mud going on here. We're, what are we, 13 miles or so in? Uh, 12. 12 miles. <laughs> Had some pretty good cruising along the river, but this has changed the game. So let's see what we can do here. How cool is this? Oh, water wheel action. Comes right out the spout. We're surviving. As we start to get to where the trail ends and like the dirt roads begin, we start to see more and more people, people just out standing on the side of the trail, waving to us, handing us boxes of mango juice or, or pieces of yak cheese and cheering for us. As we get closer and closer to Boomtong, the, the road was lined with people, especially with kids, waving flags, flags of every country representing all the athletes that were participating from around the world, more signs about climate change. I mean, it was just miles and miles of this. It mm. was unlike anything I've ever experienced before and probably never will again. Look at this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Unbelievable. The support from the people was absolutely tremendous. It looked like no one went to work or school that day either. Everybody was out as we approached Boomtong, which was really great because uh, that last day was hard. Um, you know, as we descended, it got warmer. You know, the fatigue from the event was adding up and even though some of the final miles on the dirt roads might have looked, uh, any other day might have been, you know, easier. They there was nothing easy about them because we were well in a fatigue hole. Yeah, it was. It was the it felt like the people of Bhutan were just willing us to get there, willing to get to the this finish line and kind of greet us with open arms. It was it was unbelievable. aftermath got it done somehow and there's never been a finish line like this one 
for the last six miles. There was Bhutanese kids lighting the streets, giving us high fives, waving flags, handing us mango juice, and posters about climate change. And now they're lining the way here for whoever the next finisher is coming. The whole community's here. It's frankly indescribable. Like the celebration after the race was unbelievable. <laughs> I forget the name of a singer, uh, but apparently he's very famous in Bhutan. He's like this rock star. They put on a whole concert and everyone's out there like dancing and guys shred on the guitar and I mean it was it was cool um, it's like having Beyonce at, a, at the finish of a, exactly. a race in the States <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's what we were told it was like um, so that was pretty incredible and the, the, the very next morning one of the first things we did was we went and did tree nurturing um, so they wanted us to you know continue to do activities and be visible as, as no rest climate just... stewards yeah so we <laughs> <laughs> it was very challenging, and by tree nurturing, I mean basically we went to all these little these little saplings, and we were paired up with someone from the community, um, and we like trimmed weeds and and like plucked off dead branches and things like that out in the like this, the hot late morning sun, and we watered them, and um, that was great, but. Um, <laughs> It was exhausting as well. <laughs> uh, and then, yep, after that, there was a, a climate action summit. So there was um, a bunch of different college students there. There was um, speakers from all the all over the world that were kind of zoomed in for it and um, lots of government officials. Uh, the queen gave an address um, and people presented research about how climate change is affecting Bhutan and the high Himalaya. And so that was really cool that that was a priority to have as, as part of this race. Climate change was at the, the forefront of everything. That, 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 was, that was the objective and, and having like a competitive race was definitely like a secondary goal. On the run, did you notice signs of the climate change that this whole thing was was built on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, particularly in the high country, like I'd mentioned. Um, but I think maybe what I was watching out for that really impacted me was some of the stories we were told from some of the other athletes and some of the people in Lunana about the Glacier Lake outburst floods. Um, and if you're not familiar with those, that's where... You know, if you have this chunk of ice, this glacier that melts, you know, leaves behind a lake and these, you know, moraines and little bits of ice aren't strong enough structurally to hold back a whole lake. And so eventually something will happen where the dam breaks, basically, mm. and one of these whole lakes will come on out and go and, and wash away whole river valleys, wash away communities female athlete who won. She had lost some family members to one of these glacial lake outburst floods. The people in these high altitude communities, they, they live in constant fear of kind of a ticking time bomb and you don't you don't know when the dam's gonna break. But, you know, that's their home. That's their place where their, you know, their lineage goes back who knows how long, you know? They're not gonna just pack up and leave. Right. You know, it's one thing to hear 
hear someone like me tell that story, but it's it's really really striking when you're when you're hearing someone who lives in those areas tell you the story with like teary eyes about the family members they've lost and the the buildings that are swept away. Some of these high altitude communities, you know, during the winter they would have to descend uh, to lower elevations, but people were still living um, at these high high altitude mm. communities and in mid October and. We were told they would be staying there year-round. Also, people told us how they're starting to have mosquitoes in places they never have before. Sure. As temperatures have warmed, and I understand there's some real disease concerns with that. So the the, the impacts are there if we're looking for them. And then, uh, of course, yeah, hearing the stories from people, and that was that was really striking, really impactful. Because it was race, I have to ask, Sure. how did you do and did you meet your own expectations? Yeah, um, I, I think I did well. I ended up uh, taking sixth place, which means I was the fastest male that was not born in Bhutan <laughs> and born and raised in the Himalayas. <laughs> so everyone just got wiped by the Bhutanese. Everyone basically. got wiped by the Bhutanese, like... Just got our butts kicked for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I ran days two, three, four, and five with my friend Luke Nelson, and it was like him and I actually, oddly enough, would start out every day kind of in front. So we don't, we don't like we we talked and got along really well with all the Bhutanese athletes, but I swear they were like scheming. They would like <laughs> they would like let Luke and I go out and get all tired, and I swear someone would like whisper like go. <laughs> <laughs> and all five of them would just like drift past us and we'd be like, bye guys, oh. see you later. Sometimes we might see one of their bright colored jackets in the distance or whatever, but no, they wiped the floor with us. Uh, <laughs> That's um, kind of beautiful actually. Oh, uh, it was great. And they're all they're all super legit runners. They they could be competitive at some of the most competitive races in the world. I mean, they're they're phenomenal. Was it the same story on the women's side? Yeah, it really was. <laughs> My friend Sarah, she actually was the first woman after stage one, but then she's the one who ended up, you know, airlifted right. out with an IV in her arm then the next day. So, but after that, yeah, the, the Bhutanese women, again, cleaned house, which is just remarkable. Uh, one of them, I know, she said the longest race she'd ever run before was with a half marathon. <laughs> I mean, like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, She's the longest race she ever done was a half marathon, and you know she just did like five consecutive marathons in the in the mountains and just cleaned house. To be fair, there was a, a pretty significant home field advantage, but n- no complaints. They uh, outperformed us in, in every single way, and and it was very cool to um, see these Bhutanese runners like win on the home turf and be the heroes, and that was that was great. Unlike the nightly news in Bhutan during the race, they would you know give a recap of what happened during each stage and give her reports, and it was the big news every day about how the international athletes were just getting like just buried by the Bhutanese <laughs> runners, and that was like the big dramatic headline. So I was happy happy to play that role. Someone needed to do it. Might as well have been us. <laughs> do you feel pressure as a climate ambassador and and do you think that's important for outdoor athletes to be considering 
Yeah, I 100% I feel pressure. You know, we, we met the prime minister after the race. We met the king, his majesty, or her majesty, the king and queen of Bhutan after the race. And the messaging was all clear. We are asking you to go forward now and, and be a climate ambassador and to speak for the earth, speak for Bhutan, speak for those who don't have a voice. And so I 100% feel pressure. I think it... I think it is important for anyone to to use their voice and do what they can. We can all have an influence on on those around us, right? We can all model ways to take care of Earth and, and ways to act uh, in a way that can hopefully help with climate change and, and move us towards systemic change that is going to help the planet. And if we pass the buck to someone else, I don't think anything ever gets done. I had always thought of myself as an athlete who took environmentalism very seriously. That's something I modeled for my kids. We talk about, but after the Stillman race, it felt like a whole new purpose, passion, and obligation. After you know, when when the king of a country asked you to go and do this because they'd given you a <laughs> given you a, a, a trip to come and see their country, it's you know, yes, sir, <laughs> I'd be happy to. All right, one last run in Bhutan, back in Timpu. There's Big Buddha from the other day in the city below me. What an experience. Big thanks to Gabe Joyce for sitting down and talking with me multiple times and for letting us use all of his videos from the race. I've got more stories to tell with Gabe, so stay tuned. In the meantime, at the post for this episode, you'll find links to Gabe, his coaching services, and to his Instagram, where you can see in his story highlights the videos we used with the incredible scenery of the snowman race. You'll also find links to learn more about the race itself and the climate mission of the Kingdom of Bhutan. If you're enjoying these stories, please leave us a rating and a review. And most of all, share these stories with your friends. I'm Chris Hampton. You've been listening to Plug Tone Outdoors. <laughs>